Welcome back to Parenting Unpacked. You're here with Dr. Siobhan Kennedy-Costantini and Dr. Kristen Summer as we muddle our way through parenthood with evidence, empathy, and common sense. Let's get into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Parenting Unpacked. We are here today talking about our postpartum uh, mental health recovery. So let's just jump right into it. Trigger warning, um, we hopefully we're not going to touch on too much of the um, nitty gritty of the depths of our challenges. We did that last um, in the last few episodes, but this episode today is much more going to focus on how we got better, where we are now, um, what our lives look like and what we implemented to really help us on our recovery. For sure. So um, if you have listened to the last couple of episodes, you've heard the experiences that Siobhan and I had. If you felt too triggered because you're in the depths of it right now to listen to those, then this one's the only one you need to listen to because this is going to tell you everything you need to know to seek help. Um, So the first thing we're going to jump into is how common postnatal depression and anxiety is because it can feel like such an isolating thing when you're going through it like you're the only one struggling you're the only mother doing this and everyone else is amazing and fine everyone else has it together I have no idea what I'm doing I'm a terrible mother I've made a huge mistake and these are all like they're they're intense feelings but they're actually not that uncommon lots of mothers and um, parents in general talk about feeling overwhelmed feeling out of their depths feeling like they have no idea what they're doing and that's okay no one knows what they're doing It's all a learning curve. So if you're in Australia, there is one leading uh, resource base on postnatal anxiety and depression, and that is PANDA, so Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Association. Uh, Australia, sorry. I'm still terrible at this. And what they have reported is that on average, 100,000 families in Australia every year will experience some form of PNDA. And that is inclusive of not just um, birth parents, but also non-birth parents. So one in five birth parents. So it doesn't matter whether you're a mother or a surrogate or um, you identify as a different gender, doesn't matter. One in five birth parents at least, um, and this is averages taken generally from before COVID. So it could be significantly higher. And all of the, the, the research that's starting to come out show that COVID has drastically exacerbated mental health cha- challenges um, for parents in general, and then particularly for um, parents in the perinatal period. I can attest to this. Um, but in addition to one in five birth parents experiencing some kind of postnatal anxiety and depression, there's also one in 10 at least birth, non-birth parents experiencing this as well. So think about your husband, think about adoptive parents, Uh, anyone who's taking on a child but did not birth that child, they have also the propensity to experience some form of postnatal depression and and anxiety. And this is is further than just baby blues. This is um, something that is long lasting, enduring. It's really impacting your daily life. It impacts the way you interact with your family, your friends, your baby. Um, So if this feels like you, you're not alone. There are so many people like this. Uh, And it doesn't matter how educated you are, how well prepared you were for a baby. It's a matter of brain chemistry, a matter of circumstance, a matter of the environment, a matter of what's going on in the world. There's so many things that feed into this experience. 
So what are the different types of options we can do for getting better, Siobhan? Let's have a quick bird's eye view of what there is. There's so many. I mean, first, um, and we, we touched on this a little bit um, in the episode where we talked about our own experiences, but I don't want to sound like a broken record, but the first step is really identifying that you have a coping. Um, and for me, this was a huge step because life was so hard and so difficult and things were going so poorly. I was holding on with an iron grip. So I um, was uh, what they call white knuckling it for months and months at a time. I was trying to keep everything under control because I couldn't even imagine letting go because it was all too stressful and my anxiety was so high um, that when I finally acknowledged that this was not working and I couldn't continue, um, it was a huge relief for me. Um, I just let go and decided that it, I couldn't be trusted to make decisions, which was both really freeing and really scary. Um, because I very much identify as a competent, capable woman who is on top of her shit, being able to step back and be like, I can't do this, um, and just completely letting go and um, allowing my family and my husband um, to take over like all aspects of my life was scary but so liberating at the same time because it meant that it wasn't my job to fix it. Uh, it was my job to get better, but it wasn't my job to do the fixing. So um, acknowledging that there's an issue and then seeking help is obviously a huge first step. How did that go for you, Kristen? It went really similarly. Um, and what I think we might actually do, Siobhan, is let's dive into your experience first and then we'll dive into mine second because I have more of a um, experience in finding the right help. Whereas I think mm -hmm. you have a different experience in terms of how you sought help, what family support you needed given your very particular circumstances. So let's dive in further. So once you identified um, that it was no longer tenable for you to white knuckle it and get through it, things weren't going to get better, what happened after you surrendered to that? Yep. So my first step was going to my GP, which I touched on a little bit um, in when I shared my story. Um, and from there, um, there were two options. Basically, my GP very kindly and calmly told me that um, I was under no circumstances to look after the baby. I was on bed rest, um, that my nervous system had been completely overwrought, um, that I basically, to, not to go into the specifics because we did that in the other episode, but very much my um, depression was not like, I mean, I, I have a, a, the kind of brain and brain chemistry that is um, more sensitive to experiencing anxiety and depression. I've had bouts of it my whole life but um, it was very much a situation dependent my baby had health issues wasn't sleeping and that just was a, a recipe for disaster um, so I was put on bed rest I was needed to physically recover before I could even begin um, like mentally recovering so uh, I was very lucky that my family lived nearby and we weren't restricted with COVID um, restrictions at the time so my mother-in-law my my mother and my sister and my husband did rotation, night rotations for four weeks, three weeks, four weeks, something like that. And I basically, I fed the baby and that was it. Um, I was allowed to have positive experiences with him. So I was allowed to play with him in um, loving ways. They had to be supervised, um, but that was pretty much it. It was my job to rest and get better. Okay. 
So once you started resting and started getting better, was that it? Was there, did you go and seek um, any help from a psychologist or a psychiatrist? What was your next steps? Because I can imagine that just that rest kind of helped you recover a little bit, but I'm sure it didn't take you the whole way to like feeling (laughs) normal again, right? Absolutely. So um, I, yeah, so first, like before I could even mentally recover, I needed to be um, in a much more better space physically. So the rest was, as you say, the first step. Um, I um, had already been on antidepressants for existing mental health issues all throughout my pregnancy and postpartum period. And my dosage had been steadily increased throughout my baby's life. So um, everything came to a head at about nine months postpartum uh, at four months postpartum we upped my dose at six months we upped my dose and then at nine months we I think tripled my dose because it was bad um, and so like just in terms of the practicalities of like the pharmacological consequences of that I was in a fuzzy haze for four or five days which was actually really lovely it was very welcome um, because I just wasn't present And I felt fuzzy and I just like I stayed at my mother-in-law's because I was not in a position to function. I hadn't been functioning up until then either, but um, everyone at least was on the same page that I wasn't functioning now. Um, Yes. And then so um, pharmacological intervention with um, SSRIs, then um, I unfortunately because of COVID, I there was about a three month wait list um, to get into anyone. So, um, although I did manage to get a cancellation to see a psychiatrist, which was a disaster. I have a friend who had seen the same psychiatrist and we had very similar disasters. Um, she, so that's Catherine from Mother Up. She's, um, we did actually, we did a, a, an IG live about it. We talked about our experiences, but in essence, I paid $450, um, to recite my medical history, which she had access to. Um, so that was very unpleasant she asked me pretty much she asked me what my dad did for a living and I'm like okay I get from like a psychodynamic perspective where you're coming from but that's not really doing much for me Uh, and then she asked what I was doing with my time was I doing anything and I was like yeah bloody keeping a child alive woman Um, and then I had recently at the time of that appointment started my business science-minded and I was really excited about it and I was telling her that I was making these wonderful connections with um, parents all over the world and um, doing science communication, which is something I'm really passionate about and sharing my knowledge. And she was like, but are you getting paid for it? Uh, Yeah, so that was very unpleasant um, and very uh, soul destroying. Thankfully, my husband was with me in the room when um, we had this appointment and he uh, very, very relaxed kind of just went in and go yeah but just so you know she's got x number of followers and she's making a huge difference to people's lives and thank you goodbye um so it was it was just awful um that appointment uh I was grateful that my husband was with me and we both left the appointment and was like cool so that was a big fat waste of time and money um but basically the information I got out of that was that she thought that the meds that my doctor had put me on was the right ones. And I was like, thanks, works for me. I've been on them for a few years and that's, you have told me nothing I didn't know. Um, 
And then I eventually found a psychologist um, and we had, I think maybe six or seven sessions that went really well. Um, it kind of got to the point that most of the appointments, I was just kind of talking about incidental things and I, I had felt like I'd done lots of the heavy lifting. Um, and I kind of just stopped going because it wasn't doing too much for me. But the appointments that I did go to were really, really helpful and just like a safe place to really explore all the heavy feelings of guilt and shame and all those fun little things that come along with uh, postnatal depression and anxiety. But really a huge part of it was family support for me. Um, I think I touched on a little bit in my last um, sharing of my story that my mother had. So for us, uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease, which is what my child suffers with, um, is a very much a family <laughs> uh, legacy. My dad had it, um, myself and several of my siblings had it, my son has it, and uh, six of my seven um, nephews and nieces have it. So yeah, it's just in our, it's in our genes. It's a bit unlucky, but we manage or don't as the case may be. And, um, but yeah, so I had a lot of support from my mum who had been through this 30 years earlier with, particularly with my brother, his case was the worst. And so there were a lot of parallels and she was able to provide me with the empathy and support that she wasn't able to get from her mother when she went through it. Um, so she was a huge resource and continues to be. My mom's best. I love her. I love her guts. She's wonderful. I'll keep her. And so you should. Yeah. Amazing. So, at what point did you start to feel that weight of depression and anxiety? That that storm cloud. When did you start to see the sun peek through? I have no idea about time of year or how long ago it was, but I have a very specific memory that's associated with it. I was listening to a podcast. I was going for a run. Um, down at a, a local um, cricket ground near me. I was just doing laps of the cricket ground, um, listening to a podcast. It was cold. So maybe June or July this year it was winter time. Um, and then it was maybe four in the afternoon, it was starting to get dark. So that indicates for those in the Northern Hemisphere, Australia experiences winter in June, July, August. Um, so yeah, probably June, July-ish this year. So uh, disaster was October last year, so so maybe yeah, and seven or eight months after the disaster. Obviously, as as I'm sure you would identify with, that there's there's little little progress notes, but yeah, I remember I was running this track, listening to this podcast, um, uh, honest as a mother, with my friend Amanda. She hosts that one, um, and I just like felt happy. <laughs> And it was the first time I'd experienced happiness since um, since my breakdown. And I just started crying, like with happy tears while I was running. And it was really strange because I'm not a highly emotional person. And I was just had this huge sense of things are better. And it was marvelous. And it just keeps, that feeling keeps growing and growing. Everything just feels better every day. Still have hard days, of course. And toddler trans like toddler tantrums are no joke they suck um but yeah life is just so manageable and like I think I wonder if you can relate to this when you're in the depths of things and everything feels so impossible once you do come out the other side everything feels so possible like woke up at like quarter to five this morning 4 45 
And I was like, oh, okay. Like, what the hell? If 10 years ago you told me that I would have been okay with waking up at a number that started at four, I would have kicked you because I'm not a morning person and that is highly offensive to me and my sensibilities. <laughs> Fine with it. Yeah, I mean, I am a 4 a.m. person um, and I've never been offended by it because I've always been a 5 a.m. person. So, yeah, everything feels possible now. If I was to tell myself a year ago that waking up at 4 a.m., feeling completely rested, although I've been waking in the night to my toddler, um, was something that would happen, I would have told them they're a liar and to get out of my face because they're wrong. Um, and now that's exactly how I feel. But to just hammer in the timeline, because I'm pretty sure, Siobhan, um, if I've got this right, the timeline is you had your um, crash, nervous breakdown, mental breakdown, whatever you want to call it, at about nine months postpartum, right? And then you got that breath of fresh air, that feeling of happiness, of brightness, when everything started to just feel almost normal again, at about 18 months postpartum. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's exactly the same time frame that my life, my experience took as well. So should we jump into mine now? Sure. Okay. So um, where do we start? One thing that I knew going into having a baby was that I have challenges with anxiety. Um, I've never been I had never been formally diagnosed prior to having a child and I had white knuckled my entire life. I tried to get with it and didn't realize that I was having panic attack after panic attack, whatever. Um, but I knew that I would need help. And I knew that the one thing that stops me from getting help is effort to do things. So I knew that when I was pregnant, I needed to set up a postpartum psychologist ahead of time so that if I did end up with postpartum anxiety and depression, that I could just tell my husband, it's time, call her, let's go. Um, and so I did, and I had a session with her beforehand and she was nice and like, it was great. And she came highly recommended. I did all the research. Like I looked at all the Google reviews. She was a special perinatal psychologist and she lived on me around the corner, which is amazing. Um, not lived, worked, you know what I mean? Um, and so I had her set up. And then when the first, um, inkling that something was going wrong at about six weeks, um, I booked in a session with her and I told her that, um, I wasn't able to let anyone hold her without extreme fear and anxiety, um, her being my child. Um, and that if anyone took her out of my sight, I would get heart palpitations and be straining to hear her, terrified that someone was about to drop her. And she just kind of worked me through being like, you know, it's totally normal. People do that. Um, and I, I was showing some really big red flags and warning signals at that time. Um, and as we all know, I didn't know or come to terms with the fact that I had major anxiety and depression until I was eight months postpartum. And here I am at six weeks with a postnatal psychologist. Um, so it clearly didn't work for me because she just kind of worked me through, said it's totally normal, um, tried to delve into the relationship that I had with my mother, which didn't work for me because I was like, this has nothing to do with the fact that I've got this extreme physiological response to my child. Um, and it might have some feelings of like distrust, but it wasn't my mother that was triggering this distrust alone. It was also my mother-in-law who has raised many children and I've seen her with babies, my nieces and nephews, and she is amazing. So it obviously wasn't that. Yeah, so it just, it, that 
psychologist didn't work for me. And I went back to her a few more times um, over the course of a few months and she just kept telling me I was normal and it's okay. And it was kind of, um, how do I describe it? There was a few things that kind of made it not a functional relationship for me. It was one that she wasn't the right psychologist for me. There is different therapies that they use, different approaches. Um, she was very soft and fluffy and I'm a person who needs rigid rules. I need someone to look through my crap and just tell me what to do and make me do it in session. She would just give me modules online to do it. I was like, I don't have time for this. I have a baby full time. I'm trying to work. It's COVID. Everything is hell. Like this is not okay. Um, and she wasn't helping me work through them. So that didn't work for me. And then I'm also the kind of person who says I'm fine and puts on a really strong front. Um, and I find it really hard to let that vulnerability show. And I don't know why, but it is something that I do. And I intellectualize everything. So that relationship didn't work for me. We didn't pick up that I had this extreme amount of postnatal anxiety and depression. She wasn't asking the right questions. She didn't ask whether I was having intrusive thoughts um, or anything like that. She was just there to tell me that I was normal. Um, and that might work for some people, but it doesn't work for people like me who don't volunteer information of vulnerability or people like me who've been living with anxiety for so long that everything that is a trigger and a red flag isn't talked about because I just assumed it was normal and because it was part of me. So that was my first attempt at getting help. And I had set that up before I was even, before I was even a mother when I was still pregnant. I mean, I'm technically a pregnant, we're technically a mother when we're pregnant, but anyways, before I'd had my child, I'd set that up and it failed. So my first, um, my first attempt at getting help didn't work. Um, and so I stopped going to see her and I kept getting worse until I went to my GP that day and said, what if all these things we're trying to figure out, these attacks that I'm having are anxiety? What if they're panic attacks? Um, and I accepted medication at that point because my brain has been anxious for so long. It would have a really strong neural connection that I needed help getting on top of because it was getting on top of me before I could use anything, any kind of therapeutic technique to get on top of it. So um, I took that first pill and had a massive panic attack that lasted for five hours um, and I was completely useless and then it took me two weeks to recover from that so I was afraid of medication I got in to an emergency psychiatrist appointment about six weeks later and that's how quickly you can get into an emergency psychiatrist appointment which is wild yeah so um, I got into that emergency appointment um, she saw right, right through my crap. She was the perfect psychiatrist for my personality. In that first appointment, um, I'd actually started getting better and we were talking about what had happened because I started getting better when I acknowledged and accepted that what it was was anxiety and knowing what it is takes so much power away from what it can do to you. If you know that it's just your emotions, you can accept them and let them pass rather than pushing against them. And if you stop pushing against your emotions, they don't grow and overwhelm you they don't become a panic attack they just come and go and that in and of itself was enough of their recovery so that by the time I got to the psychiatrist I was like I'm okay I'm getting better slowly I can't go very far on my own with my child but I can be left alone with her um but yeah we we talked through all these kinds of things she's like do you want to try medication I was like I don't I don't know I feel like I'm getting better uh, she was like, well, if you want to go and get this blood test just in case so that we have it and next time 
um, if you need it, you'll know what types of medications agree with your, your body, the way that your, I think it's your liver enzymes um, metabolize different, um, different types. Because one thing that you might not know about medication is that different bodies respond to different medications. So for some people, they need a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which is an SSRI. And that's something that looks at um, keeping serotonin in the brain for longer. Um, and then there's others that have a selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So that means leaving norepinephrine in the brain for longer. Um, and different bodies respond to different things. And there's different brands and different types and these kinds of things. They all do something slightly different. So there's a test you can get, at least in Australia. It's not cheap. It's like $500. Um, it's a blood test. And it tells you what medication might work best for your body. It tells you what you metabolize too fast. So it can guide you how much you need to take, what your body metabolizes too slowly. So you might get overreactive to it. And the reason we did that was because we weren't sure whether my nervous breakdown, my massive panic attack was because I'd taken the wrong medication because I took that one pill and then immediately had a panic attack. Um, turns out it was just my body giving in to eight months of sheer exhaustion and panic and anxiety and depression. Um, but we wanted to be safe. So we did that. And I walked away being like, I think I'm going to be okay on my own. I think I'm going to get better. And I stopped there in terms of getting um, practitioner help for a little while and I was getting better on my own I was taking walks again and finding joy in things I had more help from my husband I was starting to let people take my child um, for periods of time up until that point I had never had my child out of my sight if she was sleeping I was stalking her on the monitor I was watching her chest breathe up and down it was insane um, so I started letting my husband take her to a play group, which was a beautiful thing for both of them. It was COVID. So he was forced to take a day off a week. So on a Friday, I got to work and he got to take my daughter and play with her and put her to sleep. And he'd never been able to put her to sleep before. So this was an opportunity for that. Um, and so that support and that assistance started coming in, that pressure on me being her sole source of everything started slowing down. Um, in those early weeks and months after my nervous breakdown, I was so tired that um, I would fall asleep with her. Um, so I'd put her down at six and I would fall asleep with her and I was bed sharing at this point. I didn't sleep train my child. Um, I couldn't get her in a cot. And so I did what worked best for us. And that was to bed share in a really safe way, um, as safe as possible. It's never inherently safe, but it was the right decision for me and my family. And she was such a challenging sleeper that I still had night. I still took the night shift. My husband did everything for us during the day, um, but I still took every night shift, even through recovery of postnatal depression and anxiety. And I still got better um, because the anxiety was the thing that was making me so exhausted. So for a couple of months, I would go to bed at 6 p.m. with my daughter and go to sleep with her. And I'd wake up with her in the morning at 5 a.m., um, and I did that for a couple of months. And I remember sending my husband a message saying, I know I haven't seen you in a long time. I really miss you. I'm sorry, but it will get better. It won't be like this forever. I will, we will have our nights back again. We will have that time, I promise. Um, and I was really sad when I sent that, but I was, I was optimistic knowing how deep I was in this. It was really nice to know that I knew that it was going to get better. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, I started getting better, but um, I have this thing where I create superstitious behaviors when I have anxiety. So um, I was walking every day. It was a rigid routine that I had to have. And I started believing that if I didn't walk, I would have a panic attack that day. And so I believed it and then it happened. Um, and so I was still feeling really anxious and um, had this superstitious behavior of like, if I don't do these activities, I will have an anxiety attack. So, and when I didn't have an opportunity to do something like walk, and this was this was around the Christmas period, so it was really busy and chaotic, I started unraveling again. So all of that um, work I'd done kind of fell apart. And it was at that point that I admitted to myself that I do actually need to go on some medication for the first time in my life. I need that little bit of help. And I need to go and see a psychologist. I need to try and find a therapist that actually works with me. Um, because before that, I'd kind of given up on psychologists. I was like, obviously, it's not going to work for me. And like, you know, the medication I'm terrified of, because what if that makes me have panic attacks? And so I went back to my psychiatrist and I was like, look, I want, I want to go on medication. I, I'm ready to do this. I want to not only be better, but I want to thrive. I want to thrive for the first time in my life without this um, heavy weight and fear weighing me down. Um, and so she was like, all right, this is what we're going to do. And if you didn't know, the first two weeks on medication can be very dangerous uh, because they can, doesn't always happen, but they can flare symptoms. They can make anxiety and depression worse. It's the highest risk point um, for suicide. Um, so my doctor, my psychiatrist acknowledged that and given my sensitivities to these kinds of things, she prescribed me um, something to do with acute attacks of anxiety alongside an SSRI. Um, and I took both for the first two weeks and that was a really smooth transition for me onto this medication. And I was really lucky because this main medication was the right one for me. And I noticed it within about six weeks. So within six weeks, I had found the right medication for me. And that's not always the path, um, but I had tried to reduce as much error as I could um, by doing all of the tests and um, exploring with a psychiatrist rather than a GP that isn't quite an expert in these kinds of things beforehand. Um, and so we found the right medication for me. And within six weeks, I'd noticed that the person sitting on my chest, the invisible person sitting on my chest with their hands around my throat had gone. Um, I could breathe deeply again. Um, and I was having trouble with that when my daughter was at kindy most of the time. I still had trouble letting go, even though mentally I was like, yes, I have time back again and she's okay. Um, I still had a physical response, a physiological response to her not being around me. Um, but yeah, that person had left um, and I could breathe again. And it was the medication. And I was also, when I started the medication, I had gone to see a new psychologist and she was practicing acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, and my psychiatrist had told me that I had to warn my psychologist that I am a person that intellectualizes things and says that I'm fine when I'm really not. And I, I need help getting drilling down into the issues. So my psychiatrist guided me on all of these things, uh, which was really helpful. And so I found the psychologist that worked with acceptance and commitment therapy. And I was like, that's freaky. Like, I don't like I've done a degree in psych, but you know what? That's that's too soft for me. I'm not going to be able to do it. And I learned so much from it. Um, I learned about 
what my core values truly are and how my body reacts when I'm not in alignment with my core values. And one of those things is that I don't like to break rules or lie. So when I'm forced to, or when I try to be like everybody else and do those things, the extreme amount of anxiety I experience in my body is insane. So I started exploring how to pursue my core values um, because that was something that really helped. Um, and in addition to that, so let's jump back to the psychiatrist because one of the first things she said to me was, you need to sleep train your baby. And it was a great appointment with her, but I also walked away being like, you don't know what you're talking about because I don't need to sleep train my baby to get better. Um, please don't force that on me. Um, I had told her that my daughter was wakeful, uh, but that that was normal because it is normal for a baby to wake. And I was feeling excessively tired given that my baby would only wake for a minute at a time. And she was like, no, if you're waking at any point um, during the night that frequently, then you are sleep deprived. And I was like, I'm still getting like 10 hours of sleep. That's not, doesn't make sense. You, you, you're skipping a whole thing here. And so I took what I needed to from her and left the rest um, that being the whole recommendation to sleep train. I chose not to do that. It made me more anxious and it made me feel like I was a failure as a parent and maybe I was wrong for not sleep training my child because this person who is an expert in, um, you know, brain chemistry said so, but also she's not an expert in infant sleep or um, recovery and postnatal depression as much as um, just general neurological um, functions with medication. Um, so I kind of took what I needed and left. She'd also said something really interesting um, because I have extreme social anxiety. She'd said that I showed a lot of markers for autism, um, which was a really interesting thing for me to hear. And it has contextualized my life a lot and kind of helps me be kind to myself. I don't have a formal diagnosis of autism, but understanding that my social skills are not um, spectacular and that I mask and that makes me exhausted, helps me give myself leeway and kindness and helps me figure out what my self-care looks like and how to spot when I'm getting fatigued from social interaction. Um, and all of these little things, all of this understanding really contributed to my recovery. So the things that contributed to my recovery was trial and error with medication, trial and error with psychologists, um, taking the good parts of a psychiatrist's recommendations and leaving the bits that didn't um, accord with me. And there was one really funny one the other day. So I saw my psychiatrist again for the other day. And it's really nice when you go see a psychiatrist and you're healthy and not just healthy, I'm healthier than I've been in my entire life. Um, so that was a really beautiful thing to go and see her about. Um, and then I just, as a side note, was like, yeah, like talking about how my anxiety flares around my cycle, like um, at the start of my cycle, um, I can feel my anxiety getting higher. And she was like, maybe up your beds. And I was like, yeah, we'll see. Like, we'll see if it flattens out because I've only had my cycle back for three months um, in the last two years. Um, and then I was like, yeah, but it's also like, like my breastfeeding could be affecting it. Who knows? And she was like, you're still breastfeeding. I was like, yeah, my child is two. Um, she's quite happy breastfeeding. I'm quite happy breastfeeding her. She, it's a sensory need for her. She needs she loves it and I love giving it to her. It's help, helping her regulate her body's nervous system. And she's like, well, when are you going to stop? What's it to you, lady? I know. I was just like, um, when she's ready and when I'm ready to wean. Natural term weaning is seven. Um, so at some point before then, probably. 
And she was like, well, that's a bit weird, isn't it? And I was like, sure, if you think that that's fine. She's like, one of my clients breastfed until eight. That's really weird. And I was just like, okay, that's nice for you to think that, but natural term weaning is around seven. Um, so that seems fine to me. And she just kind of gave me this like snarky remark. And I was like, can I please have my script? <laughs> and wanted to leave. Like, please don't, I'm already paying you a couple hundred dollars for you to tell me that you don't like the fact that I'm still breastfeeding. But yeah, you can have disagreements on fundamental things like sleep training and breastfeeding with your psychiatrist and still find the help um, as long as they can still offer the help. Unlike Siobhan, <laughs> where the help was not um, offered. Oh, it was useless. It was so useless. Um, and yeah, but yeah. So um, back to my, like, so I think I, I only like briefly touched on this, but um, the plan was, so obviously my, um, sorry to cut in. Is this no, okay? Fine. I'm done. I'm finished. Oh, yeah. well, lovely. Lovely. Yeah. So um, my GP, so she's been my GP for 10 or 15 years. So she knows me really well, which is wonderful. Um, and I think she's been a GP for like 40 years, which is insane. Um, and, but she very much, because she was so concerned, the, the plan was that the family would come in, I would sleep. And that if that things hadn't slight, like even slightly improved, oh no, sorry, things had to have drastically improved within a week. And if they hadn't, I would be admitted to um, a psychiatric institute. So things were really bad, but th thankfully I responded really well to my increased um, dose as Kristen did for her second lot of medication, um, which is why trial and error is important. And part of the problem is obviously when you're in the depths of things, the idea of trying different things and the idea of not having a solution at the ready is terrifying. It's awful, um, which is why obviously so many people wait until they're at their wit's end to get help because the idea of seeking help and not getting it exactly is, is horrifying. And we're testaments to this. This is exactly how we did this. Um, I don't recommend it. Uh, there's definitely better steps and better ways to handle things, which I'm investigating um, and exploring as, I mean, even still now, it, my mental health is the best it's been in a really long time, but it's still not amazing all the time as peaks and troughs. Um, but I think one thing that might be worth kind of finishing on is something that we incorporate day to day that um, supports and buffers our mental health. So for me, so much of my anxiety and illness was around sleep deprivation. So unlike Kristen, I didn't realize that Sienna would only wake for like a minute at a time. Like so quick. Yeah, Timo didn't. He woke 10 to 15 times a night and would be awake for about half an hour. So I didn't sleep. I got no sleep. I was operating on about two hours of sleep a day for eight months which is not sustainable for a human body. Um, so a lot of my anxiety was around nighttime, was around sleeping, was around losing my mind, like hallucinating because of a lack of sleep. So even now, two years later, I prioritize my sleep like nothing else. I have a nap most days. Um, I like go to sleep at 10 p.m. at the latest. Um, I, yeah, sleep is essential um and that's probably my biggest kind of takeaway in um all of this is that I know for a fact that my mental health is at its best when my sleep hygiene is at its best so in terms of day-to-day -day changes that I've made that's probably the biggest one what about you is there anything that 
big takeaways that have changed the way you do things? Um, I, other than the fact that I understand what my core values are now and that I pursue them ferociously. And if I'm feeling anxiety, I, I kind of stop and I go, am I living out of alignment with the things that I really value? Um, which happens often, like we can slip into really like bad habits and things like that. And if you're starting to feel anxious and you can't quite figure out what it is, it could be because you're not quite living the life that you watch, that you want to and that you value, the things that you care about. Um, so I'm constantly monitoring that. I'm constantly monitoring my physiological state now. If I'm feeling tired, if I'm getting headaches constantly, if I'm constantly getting colds and tonsillitis and things like that, I know that I'm living in too high of an anxiety state and I need to work to bring it down. Um, I used to spend naps um, after my crash and recovery. I used to spend all naps lying down and doing nothing but watching TV and sleeping. Um, I slowly, um, probably maybe four months post meltdown, um, was able to do things in that nap time again. Um, I started picking up habits and not habits, um, hobbies and finding joy in things again, having an interest in exploring things other than surviving. Um, so yeah, I'm still very kind to myself. If I feel myself um, getting overwhelmed and things like that, I just, I take stuff off my plate and I, I tell my husband, I warn him, I go, I'm falling apart right now or I need help. Um, I need you to take these things from me. And then when yeah, and when he starts to show those cracks, he's not quite as good as I am at like seeing it and communicating it. But when I see it in him, because I'm very conscious of my partner, um, when I see it in him, I go, I'm going to take Sienna for the day. We're going to go to my parents. Please just chill. Don't do anything else. Just chill out. And like he's at the point at the end of the work year, and I'm sure Costi's the same. Um, it's getting like to a point of burnout with them where they're trying to hold everything together and especially after two years of like trying to hold the family together as the healthy parent, um, they're kind of more easily um, triggered than we are at this point because we're starting to get better. So I wonder whether this was for Ryan as well. Like um, Alex was healthier than me, but mm -hmm. he definitely had his own struggles. Absolutely. Because mine were, took the forefront. It meant that he wasn't able to focus on his well-being for such a long time. So I wonder, like, that's undoubtedly plays into things as well. 100%. And I can still see it in Ryan now. He he tries so hard to keep everything under control. And he's still very worried that I'm going to fall apart. Um, but he's learning now that I am okay because he can now finally leave and travel for a week, which he does frequently. Um, he leaves and goes to the other side of the country. He used to leave and be so worried about me because I might fall apart. It's a whole week when I was really, really sick and couldn't even be left alone with my child for 10 minutes at one point there um he's only just found that he doesn't feel guilty leaving us anymore and I've got this and I'm totally all over everything when he gets sick like everything's fine nothing falls apart now um and so yeah I'm now that person for him in that when he starts to feel burnt out because they work hard they work really hard trying to provide for us even though we are also contributing to the family I don't know it's just what they do I guess um, and so, yeah, we, I, I'm very aware of it and I tell him to go and do things, to go and hang out with his friends, to, um, just leave it with me. Cause I've now got this and I'm very, um, aware of doing that for him because he carried our family for so long on his own. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
So there's, I mean, obviously we could talk about this for days and days and days, but that's, I mean, I'm I'm sure that it will come up in future episodes as we touch on different topics, but that's kind of the summary of both of our recoveries um, at different levels. And I mean, we're still, it it will never go away. It's going to be a part of our story forever more. And I mean, we're, we're different for it. Better seems um, an interesting word to use. So I don't know if I'll say that, but we're very different and there are, there are silver linings, there are strengths. Um, which we can maybe talk about another time but that's our recovery and it's possible and you can heal and you can get better and things can get better they and do it's all get scary. better absolutely do they really mm-hmm. can and do awesome okay well do we want to finish this episode with a meltdown moment and a magic moment Siobhan yes um, you go first okay so my meltdown moment She does this every day at the moment, my toddler. Um, She wants the water bottle. She wants it filled. And then I go to grab the lid and she wants the lid. And she puts it on and she tries to screw it on. And it's a meltdown so quickly because she can't get the lid on. And she does the same thing with getting dressed. She's pretty good at getting herself dressed. So she'll always get herself, like she can get her shirt and her shorts on. She's she's real quick at it. For a two-year-old, I'm very impressed that she can dress herself. But taking a shirt off is hell on earth because she goes to lift it over her head and gets stuck. And in 0.1 of a second of getting stuck, she is screaming at me. And we're working on, we can ask, we can ask. I know that it's hard when you're getting scared, but we can ask mommy. And yeah, we're still working through meltdown after meltdown of taking her shirt off, which happens 5,000 times a day because she's gotten into that stage of wanting to change outfits. So that's my meltdown moment. What's yours? Oh, thankfully, we're in a really nice place at the moment. So they're not too regular. Um, I'm touching all of the wood that I can find in my house. because um, It's not going to last, but we'll enjoy it while it's here. Um, although we're, daycare transitions have, were horrendous for a little while, but they're going really smoothly at the moment. Although um, yesterday when he kept saying, Granny, Granny, I said no. Granny, not not today. Daycare today. We're gonna see Dana at daycare. Although, Shakara, Dana, it was her day off, and I didn't realize. So I promised him something that did not come to fruition, which was sad. But anyway, he's going, Granny, Granny, and I said, No, not Granny. Daycare. Your friends. And he went. He burst into tears, and then went, Grandma. To be so. To be fair, my mum, his grandma, never looks after him, but he was like, I'll take anything over daycare so he's just going down the list of people and family members that he knows being like Brendan my brother will he take me someone take me I don't want to go to daycare mind you when we got to daycare everything was fine um we had a really smooth transition but that like 20 minutes while we were at home discussing the day was less than pleasant absolutely (laughs) and then magic moment I think um this is a bit left of field but I finally got fitted for bras for the first time since I had a baby and they actually fit nicely and they support me in ways that I have been wearing a mixture of nursing bras and like poorly fitting bras and it just makes it's nice to have a real bra that fits and feels good and it's more money than I should spend on anything but makes me feel lovely Mm. well can't relate still wearing nursing bras Still wearing nursing tanks to bed and currently wearing a nursing bra. In every video on TikTok, I am wearing a nursing tank uh, with the little clips. 
So, you know, can't relate, but that's magic for you. And my magic moment's actually one you had a few episodes ago. Um, you said that Timo grabbed either side of your face and said, love you. And it was a really aggressive love you. My daughter didn't say that, but she did like grab my face and look at me and then kiss me. And then I was just like, oh, and like, this is pretty wild for me because I don't like being touched. I don't like being hugged. And I definitely don't understand why people kiss their kids on the lips. Um, all of these things creep me out. Um, the only person I love touching and kissing is my husband uh, and now my child. So it's pretty magical. I was very concerned that I wasn't going to be able to connect to my child that way. Um, and psychologists also voiced their concern about that when I said this about myself, um, which made me feel so much worse and more worried. Um, they actually put the thought in my head. I wasn't worried about it until they put it in my head. But yeah, I am very happy to receive affection and give affection to my child when I hate giving it to anybody else in the world other than my husband. <laughs> so magic moment. Absolutely. How lovely. Anyways, this is a very long episode. So yeah. we're going to say goodbye now and we'll see you in the next one, which we haven't decided on the topic of yet. So we'll see you when we decide. When we know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. All right. See ya. See ya.